Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Blyberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Actively Speaking. I'm joined today by a repeat guest, Kevin Hebner, who is the global strategist at Epic. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks, Steve. And thought we would do two things in this conversation. Number one, you were here in March, right at the beginning of the pandemic, and we talked about one of the things you talked about was the need to follow all sorts of new, quote, high-frequency data series that are available to us these days to give us a, a more real-time picture of what's going on in the economy as opposed to waiting for government statistics that tend to be reported with a bit of a lag. So I thought we'd update listeners on what that data is saying today about the economy because we've been getting all sorts of, uh, we promised we would, and then we've been getting all these angry letters saying, hey, where's that update? And then second, you you and Bill Priest have written a, a new white paper that's really interesting uh, about how the pandemic is accelerating the, the quote, Adams to bits transition that you've written about before. So we're going to turn to that afterwards. But let's start with a bit of an economic update. So, Kevin, where do things stand these days in the global economy? And what, what are the some of the interesting data points you're seeing? Yeah, thanks, Steve. As part of the digitalization of the economy, we have all these new high-frequency indicators. And I still think they're receiving too little attention by investors and, and by commentators in the news and so on. There's too, still too much reliance on the old government statistics that often come up with lag and are revised and so on. But overall, when you look at the, the new high-frequency indicators, they improved a lot from early May into mid-June. But since then, the even though the recovery is still continuing, it's doing so much more slowly than it was previously. So the slope is still positive, but a lot lower than it was before. And and this is roughly consistent with the type of swoosh-shaped recovery that we've been talking about and what we view as the 90% economy. That is, we never get back to 100%. There's going to be parts of the economy that don't come back, primarily in the hospitality sector, um, keeping the economy running a little bit slowly. It's also interesting, in the last few weeks, we've been hearing more and more about the K-shaped recovery. That is, some sectors, housing, manufacturing, are doing very well, growing very quickly. And then there's other sectors, restaurants, travel, and so on, remaining very weak. And I do think this K-shaped metaphor is going to be with us for at least another four quarters, maybe longer. And then within the the indicators, for example, one we've talked about is Open Table, which makes their data available at the state level, city level, and then also for a host of countries. But overall, it's running about 48% down year and year. And the trend has been pretty flat. It was increasing through May and June, but over the last two months, not much or no improvement there. Box Office Mojo is another one. Is you, you know there are some big releases going on now, but box office receipts are down about 81% year and year. One company called Wompley, which processes small business revenues, they provide a lot of data. And and this sort of with the K-shaped recovery, it's it's hard to generalize on that because there's so much variation by sector within that. On air traffic, this is using TSA data. It's down about 70% year and year. Particular international travel is weak for, for reasons we can all understand. And there's also mobility data. There's a few sources for that. 
Apple, Google, TomTom, uh, and it shows mobility data within cities, between cities, a lot of things. So from late March, early April, where places like Manhattan were felt like ghost towns, we have seen an improvement, but overall the mobility data is down about 40% from either what it was at the beginning of the year or from this time last year. Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm surprised though, being in the New York area where restaurants are, well, in Manhattan, there's no indoor dining and restaurants, movie theaters are closed. So it, it sounds like movie theaters are actually open in parts of the country. Yes, yeah, and, and there have been some major releases from the studios coming out. Yeah, to the, also anecdotally, I was walking around Manhattan, you know, a few days ago, and there were definitely, you know, you could you could tell there's less. It's just getting to your mobility data point. There's there's a lot less uh, vehicular traffic than normal uh, in in the city. What are you seeing uh, elsewhere in the world? How, how does it compare to the U.S.? Well, it, it's it is very. Complicated. You can make some generalizations. Clearly, Europe overall has done better than the U.S., although you know we've seen the serious second waves in places like Spain and Italy. So all of the high-frequency data in those places is rolling off. Coincident with much of Asia is much closer to being back to normal. China, for example, domestic air flights have almost fully recovered, though international flights still are down dramatically. In places like Beijing, door traffic, restaurants, theaters, they're not quite back to normal, but a lot closer to normal than where, where the U.S. is. Why do you think, uh, Kevin, that people still focus so much on, you know, the traditional data that, that as you say, is always reported with a lag and then gets revised, things like the monthly industrial production numbers or the quarterly GDP figures. Why is there still such a focus on that and not on the data you've been talking about that gives us a much you know, more quick, uh, real-time insight into what's happening? Yeah, that's a good point, Steve. And I think right now, commentators and investors are spending about 10% of their attention on the traditional national statistics. Yeah, well, say 90% on that and about 10% on these new high frequency indicators. So over time, I think that's going to switch and 90% of the attention will be paid to these new digital indicators, the high frequency indicators. In terms of why people are being so slow to switch to the new digital indicators, I think a lot of it is habit. In the paper, we talk about atomic habits and how difficult it is to get somebody to change from their normal routines, they have their spreadsheets, they have the way of thinking about things, the way they conceptualize the world. And you need some type of shock to get people to change. And, and obviously, over the last six months, we've, we've been shocked in many ways, and, and our habits have changed profoundly in some cases. But in terms of how we're analyzing and processing data, it seems to me that we're only 10% of the way to where we will be going and where I think we should be going. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good segue into talking about the paper. So let's do that. The, the paper is called The Pandemic Accelerant Digital Age Business Strategies, written by you and by Bill Priest. And I want to talk about first some of what I thought were the kind of, you know, 50,000 foot points that, that I thought were really interesting. One was, uh, there's a comment in there, I guess a quote from uh, Gary Kasparov, the, the former chess champion, talking about how uh, events like this or things like pandemics, that they don't create trends, they but they accelerate existing trends. Can you give an example of, of what he's or what you talked about in the paper in regard to that? 
I think that's an important point. So in in the paper, we talk about, we highlight five different trends, working from home, e-fitness and things like that. So these trends were in place before the pandemic. And so the world was moving in this way. These sectors are becoming digitized. And then the pandemic's turbocharged or accelerated those processes. And I think it's also similar for automation or robotics. But during the last five months or so, we've also been having people talk a lot about, well, you know, we have the death of cities, the end of vacations, the collapse of professional sports. No one's going to music concerts anymore. And, and I think that's more controversial because those were not pre-existing trends. And it's not clear to me that once the, the virus is contained and we've learned to, to deal with it in some ways, that the reasons why cities are so attractive and add so much value, why we love to go abroad for vacations, why we like to go and see Billy Joel or whatever type of music, sports events, Broadway. And You're dating so on. yourself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that those type of activities will endure, but there are a lot of trends that were going on beforehand that they get to recharge by the, the pandemic. Well, and, and related to this idea, there's another kind of analogy that you talked about in the paper about how some reactions will, it'll be more like a rubber band as opposed to a paper clip. And what do you mean by it? Explain what that's all about. Some economists use the metaphor of a rubber band. So when you, you stretch the rubber band, the shape gets distorted, and then you let go, it comes back quickly. Whereas if you have a paper clip and, and you stretch out the paper clip, you let go and it stays stretched out. It, it doesn't rebound back to its previous shape. And I suppose that is the question for a lot of things. We've seen the acceleration in working from home. And we do think that this trend is turbocharged, but working from home we're still going to have some type of hybrid system and we'll be working from home more than we did previously, but not as much as we're doing now, similar with e-commerce, e-fitness, telehealth, and so on. So to what extent we're going, and we won't know this, presumably, I would think it's going to be at least six months from now, maybe 24 months from now, to know to what extent these activities are going to more reflect the uh, rubber band rather than the, the paper clip. Yeah. So as you mentioned, you, you talked about five kind of specific examples in the paper of or areas, and you talk about some detail about how the, the pandemic is accelerating the transition. And so the five are work from home, ed tech, uh, you know, the, the learning from home, e-commerce, uh, e-fitness, and telehealth. And I thought that maybe we talked about a few of those. I think work from home and e-commerce are subjects that people are already quite familiar with and we don't need to dwell on. But the other three struck me as kind of new. Like I don't think I've read a lot about them. So you know, how, how the pandemic is accelerating the move towards online education uh, or towards online fitness and also similarly with health. So let's, let's talk about those. What's, what can you tell us about what's going on in terms of both ed tech, education technology? So ed tech, it's a process that's, you know, well, it's been going on for a while. To some extent, we're still in the world of chalk and talk, you know, the way we were in, in the 12th century, if you go back to the, you know, the oldest universities in England and Europe. But we have been getting more and more innovations, technological innovations in education, particularly starting from, say, 91 out of Stanford and some of the, the MOOC courses that were coming out of that 
And, and we have seen strong growth, you know, roughly 20% per year, but the numbers overall have remained relatively small. But with the pandemic, we've seen a, a massive movement onto online learning, and that can mean many different types of things. And it does appear that this is going to have lasting momentum and is going to change the nature of education going forward. I mentioned in the note that I have a, a son who's 13 years old. And his school was closed in mid-March for the reasons we can imagine. Uh, the teachers initially had a very difficult time transitioning from in-person teaching to online. And so he, he was taking a couple courses online through Johns Hopkins University, algebra and biology. And Johns Hopkins has been doing this for a long time. They have fantastic courses. The algebra course, and you know, you sort of groan when you think about algebra, but the teachers they had for the algebra course. He's a distinguished mathematician. He's an award-winning teacher. He wears purple shirts and orange ties. He sings while he's doing it. He's very engaging. And it's multimedia. There's a lot of quizzes. There's a tutor to help. And the learning experience from that, maybe there are some algebra teachers out there who would be better than the online course, but I think it's better than what 95% of high school students are receiving through in terms of math and algebra similarly for biology and so on. So it clearly, there's a lot of resistance to this from the, the education institutions that exist now and people who teach in these. But it does strike me that we will have, and we've seen this particularly in China, where online teaching is much bigger, and there are some commercial companies which are doing very well. And I think in EdTech, as well as a number of other areas of the digital economy, we do need to look to China to see what the future is. But I would think EdTech, certainly we're going to be seeing 20-25% growth in many aspects of the EdTech world. That's very impressive, particularly relative to the rest of the economy, which is at best going to be growing 4% in nominal terms. That does sound great. There are other, um, I don't know how to say this, I mean, you know, going to school serves other functions. And it varies depending on what age group you're talking about. But I mean, at a very practical level for younger kids, it's just that you know, parents need to go to work and they can't be home while the kids are home all day. Uh, so to some extent, there's there's an advantage to having children go to a physical location just because it enables their parents to go to work. But there's also, of course, the socialization aspect, making friends. Kids kind of do need to be in the same location in order to make friends. And um, I wonder, could we could a quote hybrid outcome be that, you know, kids still go to a school but the teaching is all done on the screen with, like you say, this, you know, could be that they're all, there could be kids in a hundred different schools around the country all watching the same algebra teacher on a screen in their classroom, but they're doing it in a school, not at home. Yeah, I, I think in, in all of these activities, the, the five that we discuss in the paper and, and a number of others, it's not going to be zero one, you know, going immediately from a world of atoms to a world of bits, but it's going to be some type of, of hybrid model. And whether it's shopping or healthcare or education, you can imagine there's reasons why you'd want to mix up bricks and mortars and, and mix up digital. And certainly in terms of education, there's the socialization, there's sports, there's a host of things, whether it's elementary, middle, high school vocational training or, or universities that people want that. So definitely hybrid, but in terms of the proportion of digital, say online relative to bricks and mortar, we think that over time, 
that proportion keeps increasing. And it's moved quantumly over the last six months. And maybe maybe it'll come down a little bit over the next couple of years, but the trend for the rest of the decade, I think the online portion increases about you know twenty percent per year. Yeah, no, I, I don't really disagree with that. I think that's reasonable. And of course, I realized after I said it that I said, well, the parents need to go to work, but of course, maybe they don't. They'll be working from home too. But they they need to do their work. They they can't be you know not not every parent has the ability to do homeschooling because even if they are working from home, they still need to be working at home. Okay, so let's move on to the uh, another one, the e fitness, which I found fascinating. Uh, I I just want to quote there's a I thought a funny line at the beginning of that section of the paper. It says. Before the pandemic, sweating profusely next to other fitness fanatics in a dark room with loud music was worth $30 a class. Now, getting that same workout from the comfort of your well-ventilated home seems much more appealing to most people. So I thought that was pretty funny. What do you think the outlook is for that? What's, what's going to happen to all those gyms that are out there if people are going to be working on their equipment at home and watching an instructor on screen? Yeah, and, and that's one area where we had a more difficult time getting data. So we, we know there's been some great successes like Peloton, and that growth is very strong. And then we've had some surveys, and we quote some of the survey numbers, that of regular gym attendees, about a quarter say they're never going to go back to the gym. A sizable percentage, 30%, say, well, I'll still go to the gym, but a lot less often than before. And this isn't just the gym. It's also yoga classes, cycling classes, and, and any of these fitness activities. So I do think we will, like uh, all the activities, it'll be a hybrid model, but the online or digital portion will be much bigger and have much stronger growth than the in-person, in-gym or in-yoga class percentage. Mm -hmm. And lastly, we've got telehealth. So uh, and start with an anecdote. I did this for the first time, I guess, during the last six months where I I had a, you know, a quote appointment with one of my doctors where we just spoke to each other by video. Uh, and it did seem kind of odd because obviously he can't really examine you physically in any way and he can't take any blood or anything. But so it, maybe it's not ideally suited for every task within medicine. But where do you see the opportunities for growth in, in telemedicine? Well, and it, it seems like there's a consensus from people who think about this that at least in the next few years, say by 2025, we're going to go to a model where about 25% of consultations will be done through telehealth methods. And, and I think that probably seems reasonable. There's some aspects of health care, for example, mental health issues, which that percentage could be higher. And you can imagine others, say orthopedics and things, where it could be lower. But even areas like dermatology, could be be quite high. We quote in the paper, you know, one of the cabinet ministers for, for President Trump, who's in charge of health care, he mentioned that from February to April this year, we had a 400-fold increase in the use of telehealth. So we ramped this engine up pretty tremendously. And I think for most people, they were surprised by how well it worked. I've talked to a number of people like yourself, have used it as a patient, and the number of doctors who've been doing it and people are quite happy. So I think if this does continue, we get new habits, people realize there is a different mode of delivery that's much more efficient in many ways. You cut down in commuting time, you cut down in waiting time. In some instances, it's actually easier to do through video or through a phone than it is to do in person. So it does seem reasonable, but that 
similar to EdTech and e-commerce and the others, that telemedicine is getting turbocharged and will become a much more important of the healthcare segment than it was previously. Now, one of the topics I think you kind of then turned to in the paper, sort of retreating to a more a broader view as opposed to stepping back from these specific industries, is, is the impact of all this on automation in the economy. And as you note, we've you know, we've tended to think of automation as taking place primarily in manufacturing industries, which which is true. That's where it started first. But uh, talk a bit about what this all means for automation in the service sectors, which are, you know, employ the vast majority of people in this country. What do you think this is going to mean for further automation in, in the service sector? Yeah, there's roughly 10 million people in the U.S. employed in manufacturing and about 130 million in services. So this is a much bigger deal. It's at least 10 times as important in terms of number of jobs. And, and there's no reason to believe that it's more difficult to automate jobs or tasks in the service sector than it is in the manufacturing sector. And with COVID, there's been a, a real catalyst to increase automation in a host of different occupations. In the paper, we mentioned a couple areas. One, well, the, um, the U.S. Tennis Open is on now. They normally have 350 line judges. This year, they have 100 because they want to minimize the number of touch points, places where there could be viral transmission. We've actually had that technology for at least 15 years, but this has been just a catalyst to encourage people to change their, had their habits and do something differently. We also mentioned in terms of concerts or sport events, there are often people who scan your tickets. Well, we can do that without now that we have the technology to do that without any personal contact. And part of this is through facial recognition, which is now becoming quite normal and quite reliable, for example, in, in many airports. So we're doing that. Then we also mentioned meat packers. Meat packing, they're in fact factories. They're very cold. They're very crowded. We've had a lot of viral outbreaks, and uh, it's been terrible for a lot of people. And the U.S. has really been lagging in automating meatpacking plants. There are plants in Europe, for example, in Denmark, that have that are automated about tenfold, ten times their U.S. counterparts. So this is something which the big U.S. meatpacking plants are looking at. But I think across the board, when you look at different sectors, people are looking at the potential to automate activities to have less contact between individuals to, to lower the viral transmission risk. And in some ways, this is good. So if we do have another pandemic, maybe next time it won't be as severe, but it will be negative for jobs in a lot of these sectors. And I think that is a big concern. Yes, well, presumably that will not do anything to alleviate the already high level of social tension that we've got going on uh, if, if there's more automation of, of jobs in the service sector. That, that will put another burden on the political system, which I don't know if it's prepared to handle that right now. Yes, in the paper, we don't talk too much about the sort of the macro implications of this, but I do think that's a worrisome one, that there will be downward pressure on wages in many occupations, and then there will be fewer people employed in some of these occupations. And the occupations that will be having growth are the ones which are demanding certain types of digital skills, digital training. And it's going to be very important that the opportunities are there for 
a lot of the people and people who are uh, losing jobs in other places, but people can move into these fields and these occupations. But there are ones that do require digital skills that still, I think, probably a majority of our labor force isn't currently ready for. Okay, well, I think we've probably used up all our time, but if listeners would like to read the whole white paper, I would recommend that they do so. It's on our website at www.eipny.com, and the paper is called Pandemic Accelerant Digital Age Business Strategies. Uh, So, Kevin, thanks for joining me again. Thank you, Steve. And uh, we'll talk to you all again soon. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes and additional content on our website, www.eipny.com. The information contained in this podcast is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. The information contained in this podcast is accurate as of the date submitted, but is subject to change. Any performance information referenced in this podcast represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this podcast are forward-looking statements and are based on Epic's research, analysis, and assumptions made by Epic. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur and the actual results may materially be different. Other events which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by Epic. To the extent this podcast contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable.